Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and thanks so much for joining us for this edition of Rerooted on Rondas's Be Here Now Network. So happy to have this new home here where we're actually sort of rerouting into that which is authentic within us, that which is already here, but that sometimes we forget about. Um, oftentimes I find that it's the conditioning and our circumstances and what we've been exposed to that can pull us away from uh, the truth and the reality of what is actually here, both the good and the bad, so to speak, or both the um, pleasant or the unpleasant, so to speak. And that sometimes when we turn away from that which is unpleasant, even though for a shorter period of time, it may, um, you know, sort of help us or save us a little bit. So we can certainly titrate that experience. Doing so for a prolonged period of time can often um, wreak some havoc in the long run. And so one of my uh, rabble rousing friends, I guess I should say, is um, a dear friend actually from college. Uh, we went to school together many moons ago. Dr. Timothy Patrick McCarthy. He's an award-winning scholar, teacher, activist, and public servant, and holds a joint faculty appointment in Harvard's undergraduate honors program in history and literature, the Graduate School of Education, Harvard Business School, and the JFK School of Government, where he's core faculty and the director of culture change and social justice initiatives at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. He's written The Indispensable Zin, Prophets of Protest, Protest Nation, um, and the Radical Reader. And I just want to say, Tim, thanks so much for joining me today on Rerooted. Thanks, Francesca. Great to see you. I know. You can actually call me Fran because you know Oh, I can call you Fran. Okay. I didn't know. I don't want to disrupt your jam, you know. <laughs> yes, well, it's Francesca now, but you know, okay. I, I, you're grandfathered in, so to speak. So. I am. I, and I was just going to say, it wasn't so many moons ago <laughs> that we went to college together. Anyway. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, moons, yeah. it's, 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 it's true. Um, but I've, but I certainly have marveled at, um, at the contributions that you've made and your own evolution starting back then. Um, and, and before we even get started on the formal part of the interviewing process, I want to just name that, um, I'm sitting here in Brooklyn, New York, and you are in, uh, Massachusetts, right? Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yep. And, um, I am on Lenape, Lenape land, which is, uh, indigenous land here in, um, what we now know as New York City. Yeah. Um, but it obviously wasn't always that way. And yeah. I identify as uh, she, her, hers. Mm -hmm. And I invite you to also um, share if you uh, have, uh, you know, a preferred pronoun that you could share that also. And, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, we are, we are all operating on indigenous land, of course. Um, and that is true of Massachusetts, which is a, a native name. And uh, so we, we too have to honor, honor that. Uh, and reckon with that, what all that that means. And then I take uh, he, him, his pronouns uh, when, I, when I'm referred to. Beautiful. And, I, and again, this is just more of a practice for me to get more into, because I think that it is just calling up um, the nod to the truth of our reality yeah. uh, in terms of, of, of who we are and also just getting into that curious place that mindfulness yeah. does try to bring us into, which is mm -hmm. I'm making an assumption that there's a he, his uh, on the other side of the screen, but maybe not. Maybe yeah. they would, you know, want to be identified as something else, yeah. or I'm making an assumption that someone is perhaps uh, self-identified as white or as mm -hmm. black or as Hispanic or some version of something yeah. as opposed to that. So thanks for doing my little experiment. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. <laughs> I think every, more people should do that. Yeah, just to sort of start it, start it up. Yeah. So given everything, um, we are in the midst of some challenging times, yeah. Um, yeah. politically, racially, socially, um, mm -hmm. along the LGBTIQ plus um, mm -hmm. 
the spectrum uh, around um, issues around ableism and, and really just around capitalism, I feel, mm -hmm. money, politics, um, foreign influence, all of these things. And to approach uh, what we see around us from a centered uh, sort of more whole place, I think is, is a critical aspect, right? And so sometimes people want to push away, they kind of want to check out, and maybe we can do that for periods of time. But our conversation today, I really want to sort of kind of engage and dig in from a thoughtful perspective around uh, some of these issues. Um, so starting with the idea of exactly the seed that we just planted and that you just acknowledged that we're all on an indigenous land mm -hmm. and the history of this country, you being a scholar of, yeah. of history, um, talk to us a little bit about what a lot of well-intentioned mm -hmm. sort of maybe white skin privileged, um, mm -hmm. maybe middle-class or semi-affluent folks um, may or may not fully have come into reconciliation with in terms of um, genocide in this country for indigenous mm -hmm the history of slavery, and, and what would be your invitation or your wish or your hope in terms of what that means for today? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a deep question. And I think that any conversation, I talk to my students about this all the time, and I've written about this, that I think any conversation about the United States of America as a nation state has to begin with a conversation that the nation, or even before the nation was born, systems of slavery, and, uh, and colonial settlerism and dislocation and displacement of African peoples and indigenous peoples um, in North America um, was at the root of it all. And that you can't understand the American Revolution or the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States or the institutions of checks and balances and the rule of law um, the consent of the governed, all of those things that so often get talked about with great fanfare and celebration about the revolution also has to be a conversation about what was erased in order to get to that fanfare and celebration. And so the, 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 the colonial settlement of indigenous lands starting in the eastern coast of North America and then moving westward is, uh, is a, a, a deeper and more difficult part of the history that has to be part of that origin conversation or conversation about an origin story. Similarly, the enslavement of African peoples in the so-called new world, which of course was not a new world, it was a new world to the people discovering <laughs> to Columbus, uh, but there were people here too who were discovering the discoverers when they, when they came. And so I think it's really important for us to, to start there and what that allows us to do, um, oftentimes people think that that's, oh, that's depressing. We don't want to tell the story of slavery and of indigenous displacement and dislocation. We don't want to genocide these kinds of, we don't want to tell that story because it gets in the way of this more celebratory story about America as this place of freedom. Um, but I think if we don't tell that story alongside of those other narratives, um, that, we're, that we're deluding ourselves, that we're telling ourselves a lie, right, in order to get us to a kind of love for country. And if a love for country is rooted in a series of lies, then that love is untrue. And so I think we need to start with that. And for me, that opens up a whole set of conversations, more critical conversations about nationalism, about patriotism, about institutions, about democracy itself, rights, um, that allows us to understand that America contains multitudes. Uh, Walt Whitman, who's one of my favorite poets, who they 
referred to many people refer to as the, the bard of democracy or the democratic bard. Once asked in Song of Myself, he said, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I, can, I am large, I contain multitudes. And I think that that, in a way, is a kind of um, poetic rendering of the country. And those multitudes create tensions. Those different narratives of how the country was born is not a, a, a consensus narrative or project. It's one of conflict and tension and contradiction. And I think it's important for us to understand that because we have to be able to hold multiple things in our head at the same time. That's what it means to be thoughtful, to be critical, to be mindful when we're talking about history and its legacies on the, on the present. So that's where I would start. And that's an uncomfortable beginning. Um, and, right. and, uh, and there are many beginnings, of course. We can date, the, you know, people debate about when we start the history of America. Uh, and you can start it, you know, in many places. 1776 is one of them, but it's only one of many. But I think acknowledging those competing narratives, right, that, that produce the conflict and the tension and the contradiction and the multitudes, um, I think is really important. It's, it's essential. I don't think you can have a conversation about America without starting there. Right, right. No, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm also really appreciating the parallel to the ways in which um, being of a both and or an and and yeah. uh, mindset is helpful from a psychological perspective, a trauma totally. perspective, a mindfulness perspective. If we're looking um, more specifically at the Buddhist teachings, it was about um, mm. you know right view or or clear seeing, actually being able to allow, acknowledge, and accept, if not like, you don't have to like it, right? Like you said, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. Um, but to turn toward what they would call Mara, which is sort of the you know, the sort of devil, you know, pull of, of yeah. uh, you know, um, be sort of the equivalent of Satan if you're using that, yeah. you know, sort yeah. of. And so the idea of being able to turn toward that and have tea with it, right? Yeah. Tea with him yeah. or her or whatever, make, you know, right? That's the old story mm. of being able to invite that in, make space for it, create space for it, mm. and then be able to start to pull apart these different pieces and figure out, okay, so what does this mean? What is the tapestry that's here right now? Is it really a strong fabric or does it need to be rewoven in a different kind of way yeah. with the kind of critical thought that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm constantly um, talking now about the both and approach to things or the and and approach to things because I think so often we get into, we get trapped within a, a false dichotomy or choice, right? One of the things that I think queer culture has, has, um, has allowed for or opened up is a sense of, of, the, of, of disrupting and complicating or queering the binaries that we, that we work within, whether you're talking about masculine and feminine or he and she or man or woman, you're talking about black and white, you're talking about Republican or Democrat, you're talking about capitalism or socialism, you're talking about all of these ways in which we are constantly being constrained by false choices. And that require us then to kind of line up in one way or another, which, which by definition um, requires us to oversimplify and to generalize and to render oppositional whatever those two choices are. And so I'm constantly trying to get at the complexity of things um, so that we don't have to be in an either or situation. So for instance, let me go back to the, the founding of the country. The Declaration of Independence, 
was a radical path-breaking document, right? It was, it was a, an expression of a colonial insurgency um, by a group of people who were no longer um, okay with being governed by a monarchy and by a distant governmental structure. And so they declared their independence and in the process articulated a whole bunch of things, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal, that is still radical. And yet, at the same time, that all men are created equal was not meant to use men as a kind of euphemism for human, right? These were all guys who were saying all men are created equal. They meant that, right? And when they said all men are created equal, they were ignoring women, right? Which led Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, to talk about, you know, remember the ladies when you're doing this revolution thing. But even the all men didn't mean all men. It was all men of a certain class, a certain skin privilege, a certain color, creed, etc. And, <clears throat> and then when you further layer that with the fact that the principal author of the draft of the Declaration of Independence, who was the first person to articulate that language, Thomas Jefferson, we know, and we knew then, was a slaveholder and a debtor. And now we know was a sexual predator, that he raped at least one of his slaves and had children with her. Right. And so, you know, it gets complicated real fast. And mm -hmm. so does that mean because Jefferson was a slaveholder and a sexual predator and rapist and rich guy who was in debt? Does that mean that the words mean nothing now that you throw the Declaration of Independence out because it was authored by someone who is deeply, deeply conflicted and problematic and himself full of criminal contradictions? You know, maybe. You know, but maybe not, right? Can we retain the words and the ideas and the radical political impulses of something like a Declaration of Independence and have it be useful as a form of inspiration and of enlightenment, and yet at the same time do the critical work of acknowledging that there's that? So a both-and approach allows you to do what I've just done with Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence and the Origin of the Nation, right? We don't have to obscure or to erase the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, perhaps, or the stuff that doesn't align with the celebratory narrative of America. But we can, we can acknowledge that and keep that in play at the same time that we also are wrestling with the words and ideas of a radical political treatise that changed the history, certainly of the nation, but also of the world, because it's been used in many ways as an inspiration for all sorts of other insurgencies over time, right? Yeah. Uh, all over the globe. So to me, the both and approach is really important. You mentioned Buddhism. One of the things that one of the texts that I teach in my arts of communication course at the Kennedy School and at the Ed School and the Business School is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's The Art of Communicating. And one of the things that I find really, really wonderful about that book is that he, in a sense, takes a both and approach to communication. And so he says that, that, that all the, the, the art of communicating or the practice of communicating, if you're thinking about it in a mindfulness context with a kind of Buddhist inflection, is to first you need to learn how to active listen actively listen so active listening or deep listening as he calls it is one part of this and the other part of this is loving speech but that you can't get to the loving speech without the active and deep listening and i love that because one of the things i tell my students that relation communication whether it's you and me talking now or or, or any other form is about relationships and 
we all strive to be in healthy relationships. We've all been in not so healthy relationships. Well, not maybe not we Indeed. all. I, I will speak for myself. I have been in unhealthy relationships. I think it's fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, and so we all want to be in healthy relationships. And so Thich Nhat Hanh, when he talks about communicating, is like you have to listen deeply and learn. Right? and take in what you're receiving before you can figure out what you're going to say. And so often we talk about communication, it's all about what we want to say, our ideas, our structure and sequence, our, you know, what we have to teach an audience, right? And what he's saying is let's reverse that trajectory and let's listen deeply first, get a sense of things, and then figure out what we want to do right. in terms of loving speech. And then when we speak, let us do so in a way that heals and connects and that is a kind of oral manifestation of justice and, and community. I really love um, all of I what you're that. just saying. Yeah, I, I, I do. And, 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 and the process of deep listening is yeah. one in which um, there is almost distress or discomfort tolerance built into it. Because yeah. if what you're receiving, uh, it can be. Um, if what you're receiving and if what you are um, taking in, um, maybe you want to do something about it. You don't want the other person to suffer. You're like, uh, you know, pre-thinking it. My mom yeah. does this all the time with me. She's trying to prevent tragedy in my life by, yeah. you know, planning the future for me. Right. And um, even now at, you know, this stage in my life and uh, although less so, and it's a beautiful quality on the one hand to want yeah. to step in and help. Right. So that's the whole point in, in, you know, mindful teachings of offering yeah. compassionate action. We don't just want to have um, a kind heart, although that's requisite. We also want to figure out where we move to a, a place of wise action, as you've indicated, yeah. Yeah. Um, once we've been able to sort of hold and listen. But that ability to hold it for whatever period of time necessary yeah. and to stretch out the time there for a moment and to kind of slow down mm. um, so that we can really kind of respond and not react, even if that reaction is out of a quote unquote good intention to prevent right. suffering, right? right? to sort of grok all the implications of, well, it might help right here, right now about this, but what's the long-term yeah. <laughs> impact of it? Yeah, you know, that's right. will this person not learn how to be self-sufficient perhaps, or will this yeah. person, you know, or, or just, you know, for example. Or will resentment um, build over time? Or exactly. Time. Right, right. And that's sort of more of a personal relation, relational example, but, um, but it could expand to other things. And I do think that it emphasizes the idea of how we have moved based on um, the way in which, um, frankly, in my opinion, patriarchy and capitalism exist um, yeah. within our culture uh, in tandem with uh, the democracy that we, uh, frankly, are, are feeling threatened about, I think, right now, um, is, that, is that there is a sense of... Um, really wanting to uh, come forward with an authentic, an authentic intention, um, but sort of not really being able to hold and understand uh, the complexity that you're talking about. So yeah. moving, yeah. so moving into today, moving into what this means for now, when we're yeah. talking about things like um, the ways in which we see uh, people of color um, being you know, continuously killed, um, the uh, mass shootings that we continuously see, the um, idea of having, um, you know, the, the kinds of election influences that we've, that we've seen, the, the ways in which that we've witnessed um, how our climate in um, our, our world is, is, is very much uh, under the influence of, of, you know, negative man-made influences. 
how does this apply, do you think? How can, what can history teach us? Mm -hmm. um, and what is the, a better understanding of the founding of our country? How could that help us um, lean into that wise action that you're talking mm -hmm. about if we're able and willing to listen? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm constantly trying to figure out how the past can help us understand the present and maybe inspire us to move towards a different future and, and that 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 tends to be at the kind of core of my my work in part because I was trained as a historian and I love history and have written and taught it for many years but I'm also someone who's very much as you mentioned earlier an activist and someone who's deeply engaged in the world as it is and then I'm also you know often in these kind of conversations with folks where we're trying to figure out where do we go from here and so I find myself at that kind of intersection all the time where the present produces a kind of a historical sensibility of like where have we been and how we got here to like where are we now and where where should we be going and so I spend like most of my time these days kind of there so it's a great question and it's not an easy one to answer I think that the easiest answer the quickest answer I would offer up is that I think you know if you if we don't know history we need to learn it right that's that's the first thing is if you don't have any sense of how the past has unfolded to get us where we are today so i'm going to i'm going to jump in there and i'll say oh no i know history i lived through the 60s yeah, yeah, yeah. The civil rights yeah. movement um i I'll, i'm going to jump in and just again play devil's advocate yeah. i married someone of color or i'm gay or you know or um or, you know, I, I was at, uh, I fought for women's rights or, or things like that. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, on some level, that's true, right? If you've lived through an era like you and I have lived through the, you know, the 70s as children and then the 80s and 90s and, and 2000s as, as uh, adolescents and college students and adults. And so, yes, on a some, some level, we are living history, right? We, 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 un we understand that on some level because we've been through it in a way that, say, like my students don't understand the Reagan era because they didn't live through the Reagan era, right? When I talk about the AIDS crisis to my current students I'm, i might as well be talking about the middle ages i mean it's, it's ancient history <laughs> them because they didn't live through it and so um so on some level i i can teach them that history but i also was too young to be say an act up right we were when we were in high school and middle school was when the aids crisis emerged and and became a kind of you know what larry kramer called a, a gay holocaust um and but i i didn't experience that firsthand in that way. So I, I have a particular kind of living history, but I don't have the entire history, right? And so because you've lived through something does give you an insight into whatever that period was. But just because you are something doesn't mean that you fully understand something, right? That I am a gay man, I identify as a queer person, um, but that doesn't mean that I understand every queer experience or that I have, because I have a particular way of experiencing what it means to be a gay man and a queer person in the United States with white skin, with a certain amount of socioeconomic privilege now. I didn't have it when I was younger, but I certainly have it now as a professor at Harvard. Um, you know, I have all sorts of ways. I'm married, right? Not everybody in the queer community is or wants to be married. Some are married and divorced, right? Some are in, in, in polyamorous relationships, 
or other kinds of configuration. So just because I am something doesn't mean that I know everything about that something. And so I think it's important for us to be curious, whether that means we go read books and theory and scholarship and that kind of thing, or we talk to other people who have been fellow travelers, right? You and I are the same age, and you and I have had very different experiences in the world for a whole host of reasons that have to do with race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality and, you know, all of that where we come from, where we live. So, so I think for me, it's about curiosity and it's about critical curiosity. It's about being curious about what other people have experienced in the same time frame that you've experienced things or being curious about what people have done over time in ages that are quite remote from the one we're, we're living in. But then to be critical about that and to see, okay, how do I take all of these experiences? And that's what historians do. Historians try to take the fragments of human experience and weave them together into a kind of story that advances our understanding of some other part of history. And so to be critical and curious of all of that is really, really important. And I think that if we don't know our history, we need to, we need to learn it. And none of us know everything. And so we we're always have something to learn. I, I think that kind of endless curiosity is really important and to actively pursue that and embrace that. The other thing too, with respect to that, is that I'm constantly searching for role models, not necessarily role models of people in my own time that I can look up to, but role models from the past, people that, whose lives I admire, maybe not because they were perfect, no life is perfect, but people who have done things because the, I'm drawn to the people who are brave. I'm drawn to the people who are trailblazers. I'm drawn to the people who constantly muster up the kind of capacity and the desire to speak truth to power, to challenge institutions of power, to challenge abuses of power and privilege, um, to, to, to imagine a world where we redistribute our resources in such a way where everybody lives a whole and healed life. And so I'm constantly looking to the past for those examples. And so one of the reasons why I think I'm drawn to the study of social movements is that social movements are examples where those brave individuals come together in some way to organize something more powerful in order to, to challenge more powerfully power itself. Yeah. And I just want to bookmark that also yeah. is just that um, it is so true in any kind of healing, whether it's collective yeah. social healing and empowerment yeah. and growth and generative mm -hmm. um, action, as opposed to depletion, you know, and, and yeah. that kind of thing, is that the power of the collective um, yeah. as based on the truth of the reality of our own interdependence, which we mm -hmm. often have been fed a false narrative about in terms of our individual and our, you know, sort of meritocracy and you can do it on your own, right? Which right, right. mindfulness would be like, you know, can we have like what we would call virya or discipline or energy or something mm -hmm. towards something, right? Yeah. So like, of course, I have to put that energy in, but is it just for me? Or is there a, as Dan Siegel, a neuroscientist, talks about, is there a mui, a me and a hui that, yeah, is, yeah, that yeah. is collective, right? Yeah. So just, again, bookmarking that because that strength, that fabric, mm -hmm. right? You have one piece of string. It's not so hard to break. Yeah, you have right. a whole tapestry. Yeah. It, could be, it could be woven of, of things that we like or don't like, as I was referring to earlier, to continue with the tapestry metaphor. And our minds are the same way in the sense that, you know, whatever it is that we're practicing, we're always practicing something. And so whatever it is that we're constantly thinking about and practicing is that which we beget more of. And yeah. so is it yeah. selfishness? Is it, in, you know, is it more um, ignorance? Is it more I'm not choosing to engage or to participate in this cooperative, which is necessarily how life is, even if I am in a, you know, 2.5 children suburb in, you know, um, some 
relatively affluent part of uh, America, right, which fewer and fewer people, it seems, are, frankly, these days, um, or whether or not I can kind of step in and lean in and say, okay, can I remain curious, which is the whole point of it, right? The whole point of what these fundamental teachings are about, I think, inside, once we can be curious about what's happening with us and hold the complexity of that internally yeah. to our own different parts and places and beliefs that we have about ourselves, yeah. then we can extend that out right. and we can do what you're saying um, and suggesting or inviting us to do about yeah. our collective and community. But without the grounding of self, we can be yeah. very active, I feel, mm -hmm. but also be, be very prone to empathy or to be, uh, I mean, burnout, you know what I mean? To, yeah, to yeah. We mm -hmm. can, we can lose that compassionate action, yeah. burnout, um, and then kind of um, not fulfill the goal that we might want over the long haul, over the yeah, long, yeah. long time. Well, I think too that when I think about that individual work that has to happen, right, through meditation or self-reflection or, or whatever, it happens, deep mindfulness, whatever your framework is. For yeah, whatever it is. Those practices. Um, some, for some people, it's a faith tradition. Right? Yeah, it's and prayer. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's dance different. even. It's yeah, 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 arts. yeah, the arts, exactly. So right. whatever your framework and kind of context is for doing that work, I think there are, there are two things that, well, three things that I think are really important. First, I think um, doing the kind of self-reflection that allows you to drive at what your values are and like a clear articulation of those is one thing. The second thing I think is that we have to be in that work. I think we have to confront really deeply and honestly the, the ways in which, particularly for minoritized people, we've internalized what the world says about us and what the world kind of believes about us, that itself becomes a kind of toxin that resides in us that we sometimes unwittingly or otherwise project out into the world. And then and I think the third piece for me, so cleaning up that toxicity that sometimes decolonizing from, the mind or Yeah, that sometimes yeah. comes from that internalized like whatever it is. For me, homophobia, for you know, you maybe misogyny or something or racism or whatever. Um the and we all have those internalized things, right? Well and 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 then the last piece for me is always like how can I be of service? Like once I've done that work, I figured out what my values are, what my non-negotiables are, my sense of right and wrong a sense of what my integrity would look like in a values-based life. And then once I've done the work of trying to clean up or at least identify the toxic stuff that's in me from the internalization, and then to say, okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to connect and, and, and to do that collective work. And how can I be of service to a larger society where I'm now kind of both grounded in my values and, um, and, and more healthy in terms of the spirit that I bring to the work Right. And that's how I think about things. And then history for me is a guide for all of that. Right. History is a guide. Finding those role models allows me to find like, who are people who have operated by a, a clear set of values? Right. Who are the people who have like done the work to clean themselves up to become more healthy? And then who are the examples of the people who haven't? Right. The folks who are like may have great values, but are like toxic as hell. And like we know those people. Right. I've worked with some of them. I probably have been one of those people at, at certain times in my life. Right. And, and like if you have really good values, but you're totally toxic because you've internalized some like thing, like those values are going to be more problematic and more difficult to enact. And then the service piece for me always means that I try to, as best I can, maintain a kind of humility about that, right? That I'm like, sometimes I, I get, you know, framed as an expert on whatever, right? Like, 
And I always resist that because I, I want to make sure that whenever I'm entering into a space with other folks, that I'm not coming at this as like, I'm going to tell you the truth, you know, or I know this. And so therefore you need to know this, you know, or like, I'm the only one who can lead, right? I'm the only one who can do this. So there's so often the individualism kind of overwhelms the collective work. And so for me, I'm constantly trying to be like, you know, when and where I enter, my first question or my first offering is, how can I be of help? Yeah. How can I be of service? Yeah. What do you need? What do we need? Right. What needs to be done? And who's right. gonna, you know, who's gonna do which part of it? Because nobody can do everything. Right. Those are the those are the sort of again the fundamental tenets is you know do no harm and yeah. then help. You know? Yeah. Like right. if you can't do if you can't if you can't help don't do anything don't harm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No. Right. Uh, can, can, can we, can we put a lid on that? So tell me yeah. some of your mentors. Yeah, stay at home. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Go to the movies by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> don't, 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 don't come in here and screw it up. You know? And muck it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, right. It's, it's, it's hard. And, but, but again, that is fundamental to that, um, to bring it back to a mindfulness piece is the awareness of where yeah. am I at right now? Yeah. Right. Like I may have all this energy and all this stuff. And I know that there are, you know, very well-intentioned folks who, who, who right. dive into things and, 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 you know, as activists and stuff, and right. it can, it can kind of backfire sometimes. And then there are folks who just, you know, really could step in and lean in and step up uh, who do choose to stay at home and watch Netflix, yeah. if you will. And, um, and that's not really helpful because they have privilege and resources and ability, but um, yeah. choose that out a few too many innings perhaps <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you know yeah. so who are your mentors who are the people that you've looked up to that you feel are relevant maybe for us today that we can yeah. um for you personally i mean everybody can find their own obviously but yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i think for me i have you know most intimately I, I have people in my family who are really an inspiration to me you know starting with my grandparents um particularly my grandmothers i had a really close relationship with my grandmothers um they were two very different kind of women um, they're both from immigrant stock. My one grandmother, my maternal grandmother dropped out of high school and went to work in a, in a, in a clothing factory. She put the cuffs on, on men's shirts. She was a cuffer, um, you know, led a very difficult life. Um, one of poverty for the most part and, and mistreatment because she was a, a laborer and also because she was a woman. Um, and uh, so she had a, a tough life, but then she went back to school when she was in her, her 60s and got her GED. And like, you know, that was very important to her, particularly as I started to become a, a really good student. And she and I would study together on the weekends. And so she was, um, you know, her PhD, my PhD, um, I buried with her when she was the last of my grandparents to pass away. And so I put my PhD in her coffin. And then I, in the place of where my PhD was on my wall, is her GED. Mm, so beautiful. you know she's an inspiration my other grandmother my paternal grandfather or grandmother um, was the oldest of 16 immigrant children and she ran away from home to go to college because my great-great-grandfather great-great-grandfather great-grandfather um, her father was um, thought that school was unnecessary for girls so she ran away from home, went to college, got a degree, then moved to New York and became a public school teacher. And she was a trailblazer. She was the first gen in our family to go to college. She was a trailblazer. She was, you know, they named the street to the new high school after her when she retired. So she was an amazing person. And she would often, I'd spend Saturdays with her. She helped to raise me because my mother was also a teacher. My father was a teacher. So she was really the principal caretaker for me before I went to school myself. And 
And then we would spend lots of time together. And one of the questions she always asked me on a Saturday, we used to get together on Saturdays and um, we'd sit on the swing and she'd say to me, what did you learn this week in school that you don't accept? Beautiful. Inquiry. And like, that's a critical thinking question, right? That that's I, a I question like that. to get me to think about like, what is it that I had problems with that I learned rather than just like, what did you learn? because teachers are brilliant and students are meant to take what they, what they teach you. She was asking a different question. She was like, what is it that you're not quite sure about or that you disagree with or that you have take issue with? And that was awesome. So starting with my family, like certainly my grandmothers and grandparents and, and parents and all of that. And then I think moving out, I had some, I've had some amazing professors along the way. And for me, once I figured out that I wanted at least part of my work to be rooted in university teaching, right? I knew that I wanted to teach and I knew that I wanted to write and, and, and do scholarships. So for me in college, when we were in college together, you know, I encountered some professors that really inspired me to like showed me what it would be like to do that work. And so people like Robert Coles, who taught a course called the literature of social reflection was incredibly important to me. He had been part of the civil rights movement and um, then became a, a child psychiatrist and a very you know celebrated professor at Harvard, Henry Louis Gates Jr., who was my African-American studies professor who came to Harvard when we were sophomores. Um, we were very lucky to be there at the time when the Afro-Am department was kind of re-emerging. Then in graduate school, I went to Columbia for my PhD to study with the late great Manning Marable and Eric Foner, who's still uh, very much alive, two legendary Pulitzer Prize winning historians who are um, also both activist intellectuals. And so that was important to me. Later on in my life, I became very close with Howard Zinn, the late great Howard Zinn, the author of the People's History of the United States. So I was um, very much inspired by them. One of the things that you'll notice there is that, that my mentors, and then Martin Duberman too, who's a legendary kind of a queer historian, uh, gay man who uh, is a real trailblazer in LGBT history, um, all of them were, were role models for me about sort of how to live this kind of life. You'll notice that like all of them are men. Right. And all of them are, so you are started with your grandmothers. Yeah. Except, well, right. All of the professors, right. Are men. The, the early influences were, were predominantly women. Um, but when I came of age and figured out I wanted to be a professor, all of the kind of role models of how to do that work were, were men mm -hmm. initially in part because I can count on one hand with fingers to spare the number of women that I took courses from when I was at Harvard, mm. right, who were the course heads, the professors. Um, and that itself is a problem. It's still a problem. It's changed over time. And I think if I were coming up now, I would have probably a more diverse range of um, role models in terms of gender and race and, and sexuality and so forth. You know, when I was coming up, I, there, there, I, I didn't know if there were any gay or lesbian scholars at Harvard until, you know, very late in our time here and even in graduate school. So, you know, so even my role models are limited, but they were people who were um, deeply engaged in the work of the world as well as the life of the mind. Mm. And I think that that was really important to me is that, that all of the, the through line for all of my mentors were people who were not only brilliant scholars and writers and teachers, but they were also very much committed to mentoring a next generation of activist intellectuals. And they were all deeply committed to justice work in the world or what I call freedom work in the world. Um, and, uh, and that was important, too. So they were able to show me at a very formative time in my life when the world was swirling around us, um, vast changes were going on when we were uh, coming of age, 
um, these were people who, who showed me that I could be a scholar and a writer, a teacher and a mentor and an activist and a public intellectual, and that these three things were not incompatible, that I could literally contain those multitudes right. um, and be able to, to earn a living and to be able to, to, to be of service to the world. And so that's been, um, that was really crucial. I, I feel very lucky to have, have met all of those folks and um, to be trying my own way to carry on in their in their footsteps. Yeah, and doing so beautifully, and and I think um, inspiring again the next generation of folks that are your students, um, and 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 really planting seeds there because this is about sort of you know the long haul, right? Yeah, right. Um, if we're fortunate enough to um, yeah, yeah. You know, continue to be that way. And, um, you know, some of that is in jeopardy, right, from yep. the climate to the um, political arena right now and to the yep. ways in which um, systemically in terms of the policies yep. in which, um, um, you know, things are, are um, being enacted and, and whatnot um, really present challenges to large yep. segments of the human population. Yep. Um, and, and, and from a perspective of um, sort of neuroscience and trauma, we think about um, our, our, our quote-unquote negativity bias, you know, our, our, our fear response, right? Like people do well when they feel safe. Yeah. People don't do well necessarily when they, when they don't feel safe. Yeah. And um, the override yeah. can be harmful to ourselves or it can be harmful to others externally. Yeah. Yeah. And that this idea of... Um, feeling as though we are sort of under threat in a way I feel has kind of rocked us a bit as a country. Um, and we see other nations and all around the world sort of having their own um, challenges as they always do. This is, you know, happened through the ages uh, and, and is happening simultaneously. But what would you say to folks uh, now who are looking ahead to the election, um, presidential and otherwise, to folks who may want to look at historical figures? I know last time I interviewed you when I was um, working for a TV station, we were talking about, um, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, what... What can people perhaps take out of this and our interaction together and the unique perspective that you bring that might be able to inspire them, inspire us to move forward in a way of engagement and consideration mm -hmm. and, and, and compassionate action? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that, again, you know, going back to history, one of the things that, that history right now is actually very much helping me do, and I... I earlier today, I mentioned to you before we started that I, I was doing an interview about um, sort of what we can understand from history to make sense of this political, you know, uh, chaos, crisis, conundrum that we find ourselves in right now, which is very real and very despairing. I, I think um, the irony, I think, of this political age is how often security and safety is um, is invoked as a justification to perpetuate the chaos. Um, right. Well, right, because there's the there's the there's a a certain type of narrative around that. Right. That is promoted right. around, yeah. you know, these people need to be punished, or these folks need to be right. put behind bars, or we need to put up right. these laws so there are these. Yeah walls or whatever right yeah i know the so cages and yeah right, yeah that's, yeah right. like that's uh, yeah right. and i guess what i'm trying to sort of emphasize yeah. is that the more we feel safe internally um and and, and yeah. 
some sort of a sense of connection or yeah. the more we're able to, but anyway. Yeah, I, no, no, totally. But I, but I think it is interesting right now, like so yes. much of the political discourse that comes from like Trump and, and Trumpists is this like Homeland security and secure the borders and did all this kind of stuff. And the Democrats trade in it too, which is like, that's a whole nother conversation about our problematic politics, but the, this way in which like a constant emphasis on we need to make you more secure, safe, 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 secure, secure, secure invokes the specter of the, of the fear, right. Of the, of the other, of the boogeyman. Right. And this idea that, you know, somehow the children who are crossing the border between the United States and Mexico are somehow a greater threat to America than Donald Trump is, or than, than, than climate change is right. I mean, we, our priorities are all, all out of whack but getting to the, the question about sort of how we can you know engage in this i think one of the things about history that helps me is that it helps me to understand that um on the one hand like profound changes can be enacted right that there is precedent in the past for people who have come together either through individual acts of bravery or collective uh, organizing and activist work and movement building to change the world, right? The, we, we've seen this over and over and over and over again. Whether or not any one movement has fixed everything, right? That's beside the point. No one movement has fixed everything, right? The abolitionists were successful in abolishing slavery and then a whole set of other challenges emerges out of the kind of wreckage of slavery and out of the kind of, you know, ashes of, of emancipation. And and then another generation has to pick that up. So, so history can help us understand that it's been done before. There's precedent for real progressive social change, which is something I'm deeply committed to in my own life and work. And yet, on the other hand, history also allows us to understand that no one person or one movement or one age is going to fix everything. And so, in a sense, it should manage our expectations down to a more realistic set of things that we can accomplish in our own lifetime. That, that to, to think that we, one person or one movement has it all figured out and is going to figure is going to get everything done is an, is is arrogance. Yeah. It's political arrogance, and and this is one of the things that I worry about sometimes with the, what I call the the, the woke brigade. <laughs> right, the this sort of generation of 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 uh, you know, and all young people, we were this way, right? I, I'm I'm not being too critical or despairing, but uh, disparaging. But I do think there's a way in which some people, and I see this on the left, and these are my people, uh, consider themselves as, you know, they have it all figured out. Like they're super woke and they have purity tests around that. And so if you diverge from whatever their kind of woke standard is, you get canceled, right, or called out in some way. That's deeply, deeply unhelpful. It's understandable, right, and I've certainly done it myself, but it's so unhelpful in terms of building a political coalition that is orient rooted in values around justice and equity and that is that has the capacity to build power across coalitions to contain multitudes to get the work done but i think that it's really important for us to understand that we play a role we play a part right we are we are we ha serendipitously happen to be here in this moment in history where there's lots of chaos but there's been chaos before one of the things that i'm constantly saying to people who are like this is unprecedented we've never been this divided i'm like have you studied the civil war you know and i always come back to that have you, have you, do you know anything about the black freedom struggle in 1950s and 1960s like yeah we're divided we're deeply divided we're living in a time of, of, of democratic treachery and 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 deeply problematic politics. But the fact of the matter is, this is our moment. 
right? This is our moment. There have been other moments. And so we need to draw inspiration, best practices and worst practices from the past. And then we have to figure out what in our limited time are we going to do to write the best chapter we can of history? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're all going to go away at some point. We, we may go to an afterlife. We may go to the worms in the soil, whatever. You, we may be reincarnated into a, a butterfly or unicorn, whatever, <laughs> whatever you believe. Like this life will end at some point. And so we got that time. We have that time to do what we must do. And so let's get to it, right? Figure it out. What do you believe is right and wrong? What kinds of things do you care about? Where do you want to prioritize your time and your energy, your talent, your treasure? And then go do that work. And so I think that the process of meditation and self-reflection, these kinds of things is crucial to that work, but you can't get paralyzed by it and, 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 and so deeply connected to that that you're not out in the world, right? Yeah, if, you're always, you if you're always... If you're always at the level of self, right, at some point, you got to get out there and, and do that work. And, and so for me, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out that both and, right, yeah. that, that the, the self, the reflection, the meditation, the intentionality, right, which is all crucial to, to the work. But then you also need to do the work. And yes. that's going to look different for different folks. Like you and I do our, what we, there's a, you know, we're here having this conversation now. There are things that you and I deeply treasure that are aligned, deeply aligned, and, and we're part of the same project. And there are other ways in which you and I are doing very different work in the world, right? Yeah. And that's fine, you know, and, and everybody is going to have to, everyone has to figure out what their work is and then they need to go do it and understand that by definition, it will be limited. But have whatever limited work you can do in the world link up with other work that other people are doing and try to leave it better than you found it. I really, that sounds like a cliche, but I really do feel like that is ultimately the driver for me. And it's rooted in values of justice and of love and of peace and of, of empathy and equality. You know, those are my values. That's how I try to live my life. And you know, do the work and everybody's got to figure that out for themselves. Right. Exactly. Beautiful. Thank you. And, and yeah, and sometimes that means that we have to invite Mara to tea, right? Yeah. That means sometimes we have to sit down That's with right. to, right. you know, um, get under our skin and um, try to figure it out because yeah. at the same, uh, you know, at the same time, we're all, we're all in it together, so to speak. And as, yeah. as, as another teacher um, has said, uh, you know, none of us are free unless we all are free. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's the sort of false notion. Like if I get liberated, that's my thing, right? You know, I, yeah. and I, I want enlightenment for me. Right. Mm, right. Well, maybe that's not even possible. Yeah, right. right. Uh, you know, like right. maybe it's that it's the we and it's that yeah. these moments of, of, of connection and moving the needle and right. these time periods that are um, where we can rise to the occasion and, and answer the call to uh, compassionate action that are so critical for our yeah. uh, collective well-being. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that raises for me is that, you know, sometimes, you know, when we see moments of progress, you know, and we may benefit from it. I think one example is the marriage equality movement and, and court case, right? In, in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled to legalize marriage equality for the first time in American history. And there had been a movement, a part of the LGBTQ movement, a larger, a small, you know, a, a piece of the larger movement that had been committed deeply to that work and, and, and won, 
right? They won that victory. And I myself have benefited from that. You know, my husband, CJ, you, you, I do. you're familiar with us. I and am. So, so we're gay married and that, that's been wonderful in lots of ways. Um, and certainly we enjoy that right, and we're grateful for the work that went into producing that right. But that doesn't mean we're free, right? It doesn't mean that, we're, that, that because we can get married that then therefore we can pack up and go home, right? Now there's a whole bunch of other work to do, some of which had been neglected while people were focusing so much of their treasure and time and energy in the marriage equality campaign. And so, you know, that's just one example. But there are all sorts of ways in which sometimes, you know, we win. And we get that thing that we want, right? We get that right that's been elusive, or we find that freedom that we've been seeking. And, you know, the one thing I've learned, again, from history and from my own experience in my own life, that those moments of, of, of progress, right, are always um, potentially fleeting because the forces of reaction are always gathering, <laughs> right, to, 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 to as a countervailing force against that progress. And so there, there, just as we have moments of great progress in this nation, we also have great moments of, of reaction. And we're living through one of those right now. Right? One of the reasons why our political culture is the way it is and why Donald Trump is the president of the United States, God help us, is because there is such a deep resentment in the culture over, on the one hand, the progress that's been made around women's rights and LGBT rights and African-American rights and the rights of, 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 of so many people who have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised. That doesn't say marginalization and disenfranchisement doesn't still exist, but there has been great progress in terms of where the country has moved on a whole range of issues related to rights-based concerns. And there's deep resentment over that. Right, you see it in, in arguments about voting rights and debates about affirmative action, uh, all sorts of things about the resentment that some people have over what they can see as that progress. And yet at the same time, there's also deep, deep resentment around the fact that one of the things that hasn't happened is that we have not distributed resources equally in this country. Even though equal rights has advanced in some ways, equal resources or equitable resources has uh, flagged far or lagged far behind. And so there are deep, deep resentments in the culture um, that I think are fueling so much of the animosity and, and the division and, the, and, the, and the, the acrimony that is so much a, a, a part of our politics right now. And so, you know, we got to keep moving forward, but we got to also keep being mindful of who's being left behind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's important. That's where I think, for me, again, both and, right? I'm always looking to the future. What kind of future, what kind of future can we make? that would ensure justice and equity and peace and empathy and these kinds of things. And where have we been and why are we at the place we are? Sort of looking in both directions and then also looking at, okay, how are we moving forward? How can we take advantage of these new things that we have access to? And also at the same time, who's being left behind? Who doesn't have access to these things? And that's going to take place within identity communities, within movement cultures, and within the society more broadly. And we have to constantly be looking in multiple directions and thinking in, um, in multiple ways and containing those multitudes, which are always also contradictions, as a way to, to fuel a commitment to resolving them yeah. in a way that can help move everyone forward so that it's not just some of us who are free, but it's all of us who are free. 
Beautiful. And, and, and on that note, um, we are going to uh, be closing and um, just really reemphasizing that the constancy, right? Mm-hmm. It's the constancy. Mm-hmm. So it's the practice. It's the commitment, as you say, yeah. the constancy. So there's the resistance, but there, of course, is the persistence. Yes, right. right? Absolutely. We're not resisting Amen. out of nothing, right? We're, no. we're really wanting to persist. Yeah, that's that exactly which, right. And so that, yeah. And Great. so, um, and, and to that end, I just want to also direct people to the fact that you uh, have created the Resistance School, yes. um, and um, that can be found online where? Uh, resistanceschool.org, yes. And uh, it's, I, didn't, I didn't create it. My students did. I just, uh, I helped with it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll put that link up as well. Dr. Timothy Patrick McCarthy, yes. uh, dear friend, um, noted scholar, um, so thrilled to be able to spend some time with you here today. And likewise, likewise. Share your wisdom with um, our listeners. So thanks so much. Thanks, Fran. Take care. All right. Take care.